everybody. Welcome to episode 23 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Rappel, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. How's it going, Collins? Hey, hey, hey. Pretty good, pretty good. Fresh back from GP New Jersey? Yeah, Grand Prix New Jersey. The trip was a lot of fun. Uh, I drove up with my friend Jeremy. And he had the hookup, actually. So we're in North Carolina, and we drove up to Washington, D.C., and actually crashed Thursday night at his relative's house. Oh, cool. And then we were able to make, like, the three-hour drive on Friday up into New Jersey. And then same deal on the way back. We were able to, like, leave on Sunday, crash at his relative's house, and then, you know, kind of break up the trip that way. And I highly recommend doing that (laughs) if you ever can, because it makes the trip... So much easier than just kind of like doing one like eight hour leg or whatever. Yeah, I earlier this year I drove back from New Hampshire and didn't really have a place to stay and I was alone so I didn't really want to like get a hotel room all by myself so I just drove for as long as I could and then like parked at a rest stop for an hour and a half until I was awake again and yeah. then drove home. So yeah. yeah, it's not great. Yeah, I mean I've definitely had some like solo trips to Cincinnati or whatever that I would just park halfway and just like rest for a little bit or whatever. <laughs> yeah, not great if that's on the way to the Magic Tournament. That's not the best <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. On the way back, you could probably swing it, but you know. So it sounds like you were hinting that, that the trip was good, but maybe the tournament didn't go quite the way you wanted it. Yeah, so, I mean, it started off really well. I had a pretty decent sealed pool on day one. It was like black, white, good curve with like a few good removal spells, Mm -hmm. splashing a hostage taker. So that's kind of like everything that you want in a sealed pool, I think, is where, you know, your curve is good, you have some bomb that you can splash or play, and you've got like one or two removal spells. That's a pretty normal like B, B plus sealed pool, yeah. Yeah, and that's all you can ever really ask for. And if I'm, you know, if I could lock that in every sealed pool I opened, then for sure I would do it. So I had a, you know, I I went 7-2 on day one, pretty reasonable, I lost to... I lost like a close match to a relatively similar power leveled seal pool, and then I played in the last round at seven one against some guy who, at the end of the match, was just like, "Yeah, sorry, dude, my pool was just kind of bonkers," and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> he just had like the the merfolk tricks up and down the curve with like a bunch of bounce spells and everything. Yeah, the the great draft deck in sealed that you just can never beat in a million years. Yeah, you know, and you know, you're going to run into one of those, I think. Somebody's going to have it, so no big deal. 7-2, feeling pretty good. I go into day two. I think probably my favorite archetype in the draft format is actually one-drop swashbuckling. Okay. I'm a huge fan of that archetype. Typically, you are black-red playing, like, the 1-1 flyer that's black, and then equip it up with a swashbuckling, and you're, like, super aggro, super curvy, 15 to 16 lands. Mm -hmm. I really am a fan of that archetype. I actually drafted in the first draft a green-red version of the archetype with, like, the green dudes that I was playing were all merfolk, so I was able to have, like, Rival Herald Spoon in my deck as well. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and then I got the Jungle Delver as, like, an additional green one-drop. I think the deck turned out really, really well, and I was really, like, happy that I was able to find this, like, archetype that I'd never drafted before. Like, at least the color combination that I never drafted before and, and kind of make it work, and I had, like, three swashbucklings. Like, easily won the first match... And then the second match I played, I kind of screwed it up in in this weird way. My goal for this weekend 
going into the weekend was to pay attention to whenever I felt like I was rushing through things. Mm. This is something that I've been working on just in general in magic is like sometimes I notice that I kind of like make plays just because I want to keep up the speed of the game. I'll like lose a lot of equity by kind of like rushing through it and playing on autopilot when I would be much better off kind of sitting back and taking a minute to reassess everything and understand the consequences of what I'm doing. By speed of the game, uh, you don't mean the tempo of the actual cards that are being played. You mean more like like actions per minute, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like, you know, sometimes your opponent and you get in like a rhythm of playing things yeah. quickly. Yeah. Actual, yeah, actions per minute. Draw, play land, play a thing, attack draw, play a land, play a thing, attack. Just like some sort of like tempo that you and your opponent can get into if you both can generally like play at that speed. Mm -hmm. And I've found that that's like really detrimental if I ever get into some sort of rhythm like that where like I won't be thinking about it and I'll just be like, like playing things. And for me personally, it's really important that I kind of sit back and I reassess everything and I take my time figuring out what I need to do because I am prone to making mistakes that are just silly mistakes that just happen when I'm not thinking too much. So some things that some people do in magic tournaments is they kind of try to rush you a little bit. It's really important, and I've been focusing on this lately, it's like it's really important for me to not get rushed. Yeah. Like if my opponent thinks I'm taking too long to make a decision, then they're definitely welcome to call a judge. But generally I, you know, I'm going to take my time, but I'm going to be playing at a reasonable pace. So I don't think that a judge would view it as slow play. Yeah, and it's not like a fear of slow play that that's the thing that always like makes me play a little too fast. It's not that I think a judge is going to mm -hmm. wander over and give me a warning. It's more like in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, if I were a good player or if I were playing properly this game, I would know which play to make and I would do it quickly. And it's it's sort of that weird like fear of seeming like you don't know what you're doing. And it's it's really unhealthy to actually knowing what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And I think that people play too quickly a bit too often just in order to like keep up with whatever tempo that they're in and uh, like round one of this tournament in day one my opponent attacked me with two creatures and i thought for maybe like 10 seconds my opponent said come on man you have two decisions you can block this guy or you can take it what are you gonna do i just kind of looked up at him <laughs> and i said thanks and i continued thinking about it for like another 10 seconds <laughs> um and a lot of people try to get in your head like that. Like some people, like either they're impatient or they're actually trying to get you to like think too quickly or whatever. It's really important for me to like have some sort of defensive mechanisms against that because I, I know about myself that I can get got a little bit. I don't know, like th this is certainly before your time, but other people who did mid-level SCG events in like early 2010s will remember playing against Colosso Fuentes was kind of notorious for that sort of like pacing the gameplay and sort of like knocking you off your rhythm. And I played against him a couple of times and I got knocked off my rhythm completely. And it's it's an effective, yeah. if pretty gray hat, black hat strategy of, of playing Magic, <laughs> so. Right, no, for sure. Um, yeah, there's a concept that I like to think about a lot, which is called entrainment. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, especially on the Star City Games tour, do this a lot, where they, they will do exactly what you're talking about, and they'll try to... They'll notice that you like have a different tempo than them, and they will speed up the game intentionally to try to like you know keep you speeding up. because So the concept of entrainment is you will find yourself 
just kind of like going along with whatever your opponent is doing. If they're playing fast, you're going to play fast. Mm -hmm. If they're going to play slow, then you're going to play slow. I, I know that a lot of players will do exactly what you're talking about and intentionally like pick up the pace of the game because they're used to playing fast and they can recognize that you're not used to playing fast. And they, they do do that to just throw you off. So anyways, I just kind of got lost in that again. And my opponent was playing fast and I started playing fast and I got entrained into his speed of playing. Yeah. And I'm playing this one drop aggro deck essentially with like swashbucklings and stuff. On my turn three, I attacked him with some creatures. In my hand, I had two one-drops, and my plan was to play those two one-drops. But since we were playing so fast, I drew a two-drop, and I didn't really recognize that I drew the two-drop. So I drew the two-drop, I kind of put it in my hand face down after glimpsing at it. I did my attack, and then I played my two one-drops. I only had three lands that game, mm -hmm. so it would have been much, much better for me to play a two drop and a one drop just kind of like obviously everybody everybody knows to do that in that spot sure. right yeah but i uh i missed it i i kind of got i got lost in it a little bit and wasn't paying attention didn't stop to reevaluate the board state post combat or even you know i should have reevaluated before going to attacks you know <laughs> we were just playing too quickly for for me i i kind of made that mistake and then effectively i i put a one one into play when i could have put a two two into play and I just got super punished for it and ended up losing a really, really close game where I ended up having to chump a 2-2 with the 1-1 one -one that I played on accident. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like the clearest example of me, you know, messing up because we were in this like super close race. So I, I kind of like failed my goal to like make sure that all my plays I'm like thinking about thoroughly before making them in this situation we like the whole match finished with like 30 minutes left on the clock so it's we were playing an aggro mirror and i could have easily just like you know slowed it down a little bit and taken my time yeah and then my deck was great so i won the next round pretty easily so i'm nine and three and i can 3-0 this pod to make top 16 or i can 2-1 to cash or i can win one match and lock up bronze with a pro point. Oh man, I have a real um, bad feeling about where this story ends up after that introduction. But, <laughs> yeah, as you can probably tell from what I'm saying, uh, I ended up 0-3-ing the pod. My draft was kind of a train wreck. I think I really misevaluated what seat I was in. In generic Ixalan fashion, the pack one was really ambiguous. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what kind of spot I wanted to end up in. Sitting to my right are two excellent drafters in Noah Walker and Osip Lebedowicz. Mm. I should, in theory, I think, be able to figure out what spot I'm in given signals. Or they were taking the same approach that I was and staying super open and just taking the best card out of every pick, pack one. Yeah. If you're on the left of two players who are just kind of like also really using pack one to just get a feel for things and not really committing anywhere. Then nobody has a feel then for you anything. you just kind of have no idea yeah. where you're supposed to be. Yeah. So I ended up drafting like this blue-green merfolk deck that really didn't have any payoffs. I had four Kamina speakers, mm -hmm. so like a pretty aggressive curve, but only one River, River Herald's Boon and like no one with the winds and no like payoff merfolk creatures. See, that's kind of tough. Like, like, that's a tough spot to be in because I definitely count Kumena Speaker as a premium uncommon for that deck. 
So the fact that you're getting them, like if I were getting speakers handed to me, I would definitely feel like I'm in the right spot for a Merfolk deck for sure. The problem was that I got them all in pack two okay. from the left. Interesting. So I think that somewhere in pack one, at the end of pack one, either Noah or Osip decided to go into Merfolk. And I got a bunch of Kamenis speakers in pack two mm-hmm. as kind of like my payoff for being in Merfolk. But only Kamenis speakers and no River Herald Spoon, no like... Uh, Line Shaper Mystics, yeah. Blue-green Merfolk guy, or just kind of like any of like the super high-impact Merfolk creatures that you want. Yeah. Happened I like I did I didn't see any of those in, in pack two. I just saw a bunch of committed speakers, which are good, I think, in Merfolk, but just not really like it doesn't give your deck that power level that you're really looking for. Right. They're good because they're the best lead up to the the commons, the payoff commons. Right, yeah, right. It, they are what make your one with women so busted and they are what make your you know, the other stuff really good. But the the one card that I had that kind of like tied it all together was is it the Tide Caller? Uh, the 2-3 for 4 that taps all of your opponent's creatures? Tempest Caller. Tempest Caller, yeah. So I had one of those. So my plan was actually just to try to get in some early beats with the 1-drops <laughs> and then like get my opponent down to a life love total where eventually I could Tempest Caller and tap all my opponent's creatures and kill them that sure. way. And generally the board would like clog up a little bit. So like I'm, I'm, I'm being aggressive, but I have no way of punching through then the board's going to clog up because my opponent's kind of like feeling on the back foot a little bit. And then I can Tempest Caller and kill yeah. them. There are two matches that I actually kind of spectacularly screwed up. And one of these scenarios is actually going to lead into our topic for today. Ooh, so okay, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I'm rambling a little bit about this. <laughs> but So there's one match in particular that I want to talk about. I should have identified that I was in pretty full control of how this game was going to play out. Okay. I started off with an aggro beatdown plan, got my opponent down to 10. I had the the Tempest Caller in my hand, so I could uh, essentially, you know, wait for my opponent to tap out and then just kill him. Mm -hmm. All I needed to do was a massive board state of enough dudes to be able to threaten that, right? And definitely go for, like, a more board-solly board state. So the game played out, and this is game three, and my opponent had shown me two pounces beforehand Mm -hmm. so i knew about pounce and my opponent passed the turn with two treasures up and i recognized that i could go for it here but i lose to pounce or not lose to pounce but it's not lethal through pounce i put him to like three or something through a pounce for whatever reason i just kind of decide to go for it in that spot because i figure if I can put him down to three, then my board's like a little wider than his. I can probably, you know, lean on that and then make an alpha strike that gets in three damage later. I kind of like incorrectly assessed that I could win through a pounce later, and I decided to go for it because it put him to exactly dead if he didn't have it. So it was kind of like a show me move. Mm-hmm. And he had the pounce and then was able to easily stabilize and win from there. Because my deck is just a bunch of ground pounders and we're in the super late game (laughs) in the board stall. Um, I think had I recognized that I was actually in pretty full control of this game. So I can say, okay, what if my opponent has a pounce? I still have more creatures in my hand. Why don't I just deploy more to the board and a massive board state that's more than 10 power and can actually still win 
with an alpha strike through like two removal spells. Yeah. It's just a much better spot to be putting myself in. And, you know, if he doesn't have it, then kind of whatever, I'm probably going to win anyways. I just got super greedy and decided to go for it in a spot where I probably just never should have. And you were in control of the game enough that, like, your life total wasn't being pressured. You weren't under, like, any time constraints or anything like that. Right. The thing about Tempest Caller is, like, he doesn't have any sort of hand disruption, and he's not going to be able to get it out of my hand. Uh, like, even the hand disruption of the format in, like, Tight Self Rebooter and just duress isn't going to be able to hit it. Mm -hmm. So I can sandbag it as, as long as I want to. He's really not putting me under a lot of pressure. He had a flyer that was kind of hitting me a little bit every turn, but I had like four turns before I was dead to that flyer. Sure. So I could have easily just been more patient, played the game into a spot where even if he had like two removal spells, like him killing my two biggest guys was still going to be lethal since he had no blockers with the through the Tempest Collar. So I think that actually in that game, I was pretty far ahead probably like definitely getting behind on board but because i had the tempest collar that just gives me such a huge advantage and i just kind of lost to the only thing that i could lose to in that spot when i could have easily played in such a way that would beat the only thing that i lose to that's a pretty big concept and i think that one that we can focus on today which is you're when you're playing from ahead you need to identify what you can lose to identify whether or not you can afford to play around it and if you can i think that you should take the steps that you can to make sure that you're not losing to like even the most narrow scenarios yeah definitely and you know in that in that scenario uh it's not that narrow it's like my opponent having a trick or not but there are some scenarios where what your opponent needs to have is very very narrow but it might still only be the be the only way that you can possibly lose the game yeah and I, I think this is a really important concept, I mean, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, if you get better at playing from ahead, you will raise your win percentage because you'll throw away fewer games. But I think in particular, people tend to play worse when they're ahead. Like, yeah, for sure. Like, for sure. I know when I'm behind, my play is much, much tighter than when I'm ahead. I think it's a little bit easier to play from behind because you just... You know, we've talked about this before, but you shut off a lot of avenues when you're behind. If a pump spell is going to kill you no matter what you do, you just pretend they don't have the pump spell. It, it sort of simplifies the game a little bit. When you're playing from ahead, you have to start thinking about all of the different possibilities, and there's lots of routes that you have to sort of explore with your brain, and that can be really, really difficult. But I think it's, it's super important to improving as a player. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes you're playing, like, from really far ahead, and you just kind of get sloppy. Yeah. Like, I see this from a lot of control players, where they feel like they've reached the point where they've locked up the game, and they've got a bunch of counterspells in their hand, and they've cast two gear hulks that they're beaten down with, and then occasionally you can just kind of lose to something silly. Yep. Like, I think one example is actually a match that my friend and teammate Dylan played like in his first round of an open where he's playing Jeskai Control in standard with Gear Hulks and Cast Out had just been printed and Pull from Tomorrow. Like these were all the cards that were like kind of new and we wanted to play them at a control deck. Mm. And Dylan loves his control. so And he played against a black-green Walking Ballista. Yeah, Wanda Constrictor. Yeah. Wanda Constrictor deck, yeah. So this is kind of like the aggro deck of the format, right? And he played Ronus and was just trying to like beat down. And Dylan kind of stabilized at four. And they're like running out of time. So Dylan 
really starts picking up the pace of the game, playing really fast, casting some gear hulks, and cleaning up the rest of the board, and he feels like he's got full control of the board. His opponent's just got nothing. He's got a bunch of mana in play. But he does have a uh, Hissing Quagmire in play. Dylan had just attacked him down to, like, five with two gear hulks. And Dylan, in his hand, has a cast out and, like, maybe another piece of interaction to really just, like, kind of lock out whatever his opponent's trying to do. Mm-hmm. His opponent... Draws and plays a Ronus. Has no other creatures in play other than the Quagmire. Dylan's just like, sure. And then an opponent activates the Quagmire. And Dylan says, sure. (laughs) And his opponent attacks him with the Quagmire. And then pumps it with Ronus. And Dylan's just dead. Yep. And Dylan goes, how did I screw this up? (laughs) He could have easily responded to the activation of the Hissing Quagmire by casting out the Ronus. Mm -hmm. To live. And cast out says non-land permanent is why it can't get the hissing. Right, and that's kind of like a weird, uh, it's a weird play a little bit Mm -hmm. to respond to your opponent's activation of their mainland by casting out their Ronus. He just loses if he doesn't do that, right? Yeah. So he has to, he felt so in control of the game, like he felt like he couldn't lose, but you know, he just kind of like slipped up and didn't think about the scenario where cast out can't hit uh, lands. (laughs) Um, Although, to be so fair, he... in that situation, if his opponent had just done things in the correct order to play around cast out, then Dylan wouldn't have had any opportunity. Yeah, activate first. Then cast around us, and then, uh, and then pump. But but that's not what happened. I mean, he did. his opponent did mess up and give him the opportunity to, to take the game. And Yeah, and I, I might be misremembering the scenario, because I don't remember seeing a way that his opponent could have won. But it was, it was something like what I'm describing. Sure. Yeah, and Dylan just kind of slipped up, and that was it. That was the match. <laughs> so that's kind of like another scenario where you just kind of get lost in, you know, lost in it a little bit, where you feel like you're so far ahead that there's nothing you can lose to, that you just kind of start playing sloppily, giving your opponent the thumbs up when you really shouldn't be on, like, certain actions that they take. So what can we do specifically? Like, I know the general theory is when you're ahead, you play around more things, and you need to think a little deeper about what you can die to. But do you have anything that you specifically do to help you do that? One thing that I like to do when I'm in spots like this is whenever I feel like very far ahead, I actively try to slow down the match. Mm -hmm. Not in like a try to go to time kind of deal, but in a slowing down my own thinking process. Yeah. Because I recognize the bias that I have to play quickly when I'm ahead to just try to get the game over with and win and... You know, winning feels great, so you want to do that. <laughs> but I, I think that whenever I'm really far ahead, I actively try to slow it down and think through all of the kind of like weird things that I might be overlooking and the like the weird things that I could lose to in the spot. And kind of like a weird thing that happens when you're doing that when you're really far ahead is that sometimes your opponent gets a little annoyed at you. <laughs> Because they're like, come on, dude, I'm, I'm clearly dead here. What are you, what are you doing trying to wait and before turning all your creatures sideways? But I think that it's, it's important to do that because the one time out of 50 that you missed something because you rushed into turning all your creatures sideways is going to be worth sitting there and reevaluating the other 49 scenarios where your opponent's just dead, Yeah. right? Yeah. It's worth the extra 10 seconds to be like, 
Let me survey the board again. Let me think about what you could have in this scenario. Take another look at the board state and see if there's anything on board that you might be over overlooking. Um, think about what they could have in their hand to prevent you from doing what you're trying to do. And just kind of like think through the consequences of all of that. And it's pretty counterintuitive to slow down when you're really far ahead because I think that we all have a natural tendency to kind of want to speed up the game a little bit. Yeah, even if it's just out of politeness more than anything else. Right, because there's this, you know, people talk about slow rolling a lot, mm -hmm. which is like a, a concept that comes from poker. If you if you have the win, don't leave your opponent hanging there, just kind of show them that you've, you've got them dead. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you are more worried about what your opponent's going to think that you're slow rolling them than you are about actually sitting through and thinking all the possible things that your opponent could have, then you're going to be losing a lot of equity long term. So I think that your opponent can wait an extra five to 10 seconds for you to kind of reassess the board and make sure that there's no weird scenarios where you get punished for your actions, right? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. So I think that a lot, of, a lot of people have that tendency because they're so worried about their opponent thinking that they're slow rolling them, where... In, in reality, you're just trying to play around as much as you can and, and think through the weird ways that you could lose. Yeah. This is something... So I played a lot of Modern Burn, and this is something that actually happened a lot when I played against Blue Decks, where I would get them down to three, and I would have a bolt in my hand, and I would say, go. They would untap, and they would draw, and they would do something. Then I would just take my next draw step. And I would, you know, play Drago. And then they would try to go for something eventually and tap down to the point where I knew that there was 0% chance that they would be able to live. Mm -hmm. And then I would fire off all my burn spells. Yep. But if they ever have any blue mana up and I only have, like, one burn spell, then I'm just not going to fire it off. Because, you know, even if they're just at three and it's very unlikely that they'll be able to win long term, it's just better for me to play this Drago game if you don't have any pressure against any sort of blue deck in modern because if your opponent is able to use their mana efficiently and get all these counter spells out of their hand one by one then you're just in a much worse spot than if you just kind of play drago as the burn player until you can overload whatever mana that they have right you probably have like an 80 percent chance of killing them right there with that last bolt and even if they do have the counter, you still have a real good chance of your next burn spell resolving. But because they need to cast something to kill you with eventually, like you're going to have that 95% or a 100% shot at some point in the game. Yeah, and you know, I, I definitely have played a lot of matches where I I draw, I get my opponent down to three, and they're playing some like blue control deck with counter spells. I draw a lightning bolt and I say go, and then I draw a Boris charm and I say go, and <laughs> then I draw like another lightning bolt and I say go, and then my opponent taps down to three mana to play a threat. And I go, all right, instead, Boris charm you, and then they go, oh, God, come on, man, why'd you have to slow morbidly like that? And I'm just like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what you have in your hand. You could easily have, you know, a bunch of counter spells. You're, so it's just you're the one who put islands in your deck, so. This is not my fault. Right, yeah. So I think that's it's kind of like a similar concept. You still want to be playing correctly, even if you're worried about slow rolling your opponent. And if playing correctly means taking an extra 15 seconds to assess the board state, then you should be doing that. Like in the burn scenario, playing correctly was sandbagging the lands and passing the turn. But in other scenarios, a lot of people overlook the fact that playing correctly means thinking about the right things in that spot, mm -hmm. right? Playing correctly is taking 15 seconds to assess the board 
and then make your attack. Whereas playing incorrectly could look like just making the attack. And it might still be getting there, right? And you might say make the same play after assessing the board or after not assessing the board. But the mistake in that scenario is just not taking the time to think through the possibilities that your opponent could have. Yeah. If anybody wants to read about this, I know that your your most recent article, or maybe second most recent article on SCG is about this. But the mistake there is when they have four lands up and you just go straight to attack without thinking about what cryptic command does to this situation, you know, even if you yeah. still choose to go straight to attack and that's the right thing, if you never think cryptic command, then you messed up. You made a mistake because you didn't realize the possibility and think about if there is something different you should do there. Yeah, if you definitely want to read more about that, I recommend checking out my article on mistakes on uh, Star City Games. The important concept there is that the mistake that you make happens before you take any actions. Mm-hmm. Because the actions are, you know, it's so hard to identify which actions that you took were the incorrect ones. You know, when, when people are going back and thinking about the mistakes that they make in the game, they're thinking specifically about the actions that they took that led to them losing. But I think that the if we're actually looking for the source of the mistake and figuring out ways to prevent ourselves from making those incorrect actions, then we need to really think closer about what our thought process was like and whether or not we thought about what they could have, you know, taking taking the extra time to to make sure that you're understanding the consequences of each actions that you take before taking any actions. Like those like failure to do that is the real mistake here that we have so much control over. You have all of the control over whether or not you think through these things. If you're not thinking about it, then you're going to be making mistakes. And then the the incorrect actions that you're taking are just going to be a symptom of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a, a, a really good concept, I think. So that's just kind of like something that I've been running into a lot lately. Personally, you know, I've, I've been playing a lot of Magic lately and I'm still doing this all the time, <laughs> is that I rush through decisions and recognize later that I just didn't think about the right things. And I'm like, well, dang it, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to get better at this, but it's so hard. Do you think that gets a uh, little worse when you've been playing a lot? Because, like, you've seen very similar situations a bunch of times before, so your autopilot kicks in and, and you go with what you did, w- with what was right last time, but there's, like, a key difference that just didn't quite break through your automatic processing? Yeah, so I, I definitely do think that sometimes you kind of get playing on autopilot just because of you've been playing so much magic lately if i'm ever testing a lot on magic online Mm -hmm. like if i'm spending a couple of hours just playing multiple leagues or whatever kind of by the end of that session i recognize that i'm just like playing purely on autopilot and that just kind of like comes from fatigue or whatever that that playing a bunch of magic Mm kind of can offer but yeah i I definitely do think that the more you play the more likely you're going to be playing on autopilot yeah so it definitely is a little bit of that but i think it's important to just recognize that that's happening and if you can recognize that that's happening then you can take actions to do better yeah so one thing that i kind of want to mention about trying to play tight while you're ahead talked about how it's more difficult than playing from behind because playing from behind you recognize like okay this is my route to victory here this is the only way that i can come back one thing that i think i'm trying to do more is 
sort of flip the script there. Because if playing from behind is easier than playing from ahead, then I think that by putting myself in my opponent's seat and pretending to be them and thinking, all right, what do I have to do to win from here? I think that may fire some neural pathways that have seen some more use and, and get me thinking a little bit better uh, about what to do. And, and the example that I have for like a place where I really should have done this and didn't Last night, I was playing Mono Red online, uh, and I, for some reason, kept getting paired up against Pummeler, which I'm totally fine with because that's a great matchup. But one game, I was very far ahead, and I started thinking about what I could lose to. And, you know, if we're, we're treating this as this step-by-step process, and you've got step one, figure out what you can lose to, and then step two is figure out how to play around it. And I... I think I accurately identified what I could lose to. I thought, I don't want him to Cartouche of Ambition me because I will probably not be able to finish him off because he had a Bristling Hydra in play. I was like going kind of wide and he was at a pretty low life total. But somehow my processing after that point, my decision-making was thought that he had had chances to play it and hadn't played it. And, and so I wanted to kill him before he had a chance to draw it. So I just turned everything sideways, yeah. which I knew would take him very low but then he blocked in a way that I didn't expect, which was he only had three blockers and he put two of them in front of my only rampaging Ferocidon and then chump blocked another thing, which ended up taking him to two. And I don't know how deeply I thought this all through, but that block really surprised me. And, uh, and uh-huh. it ended up with him taking like three more damage, two or three more damage than sort of the blocks I was expecting because, you know, two creatures are used up blocking three damage you, so you kind of you were worried about the cartouche but then you kind of like offered up your my my cartouche protection um, yeah rampaging ferocidon right and i i for some reason i just didn't think he would take the extra damage because it was a significant amount of extra damage i think he would not have been dead to any single burn spell if he had let it through and he left himself dead to a single burn spell but if right. i were playing in his spot I would look at that attack that my opponent was making with the Rampaging Ferocidon and everything, and I would think, well, the only way for me to win this game is if he doesn't have a burn spell so I can land this Cartouche of Ambition with no Ferocidon in play. And so I, I gave him a forced yeah. block that let him win the game. And if your opponent's really smart, then even if they don't have the Cartouche of Ambition, they can recognize that the only way that I win this game is by getting that card off of the table. Yep. And then potentially drawing the cartouche on my next draw step to be able to win the game from there. Because sometimes that's your out to win. Right. So, yeah, giving him the option to do that seems... Just bad. <laughs> like a mistake. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. it was. Um, um, and and that's, that's a key thing there, too, is that, you know, if your opponent is good, he knows he has to make that block even if he doesn't have the cartouche of ambition in hand because that's his route to win. And so the yeah. fact that I didn't know his hand should have had no bearing on my decision. It was kind of irrelevant. Yeah. As long as you're thinking about, you know, Cartouche being the out or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Because eventually I was going to win that game. Even if he, even if I didn't attack with the Ferocidon, like keeping that Ferocidon in play. Because he was also blue-green pummeler. He didn't have Harness Lightning. I don't think he had a way to get rid of my Ferocidon. I think that if I had just sat there and thought about it a little bit, and especially if I had taken in the board from his perspective, I would have realized, as long as that Ferocidon is in play, I don't think I can win the game. And so 
flip yeah. it back to myself, and I realize that this game revolves entirely around rampaging for Rasadon. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's, that's a really cool scenario because, yeah, putting yourself in your opponent's seat there to identify what the out is to win from their spot is, I think, much more effective. I think that you're completely right in that in that scenario, you're like, okay, what, what can my opponent do? What is my opponent trying to do in order to win this game? Probably get this Rampaging Frost on off the board somehow. Yep. And then, you know, and then they can play towards their outs from there. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good scenario. Yeah, I was, I, I'm pretty lucky to run into that last night. I mean, I lost that match because of that decision, but I'm glad that I was able to use it yeah. as an example here. <laughs> but yeah, you, you got one of those uh, good hard lessons. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, those are good to, those are, those are good to come across for sure. Yeah. And it also kind of speaks to why it's good to get experience with a variety of decks in the format, because it's much easier to put yourself in the pummeler shoes if you've played pummeler, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that definitely goes a, a long way towards just kind of like familiarity with any format yeah. where you are going to be able to understand these like really niche scenarios so much better having played the opposing deck. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing for preparing for the modern Pro Tour in a couple months actually is just like going through a bunch of different decks and playing them and seeing how they feel and seeing how they play out and everything. And kind of one of the reasons why I'm doing that is so that I can name better off of metallic mage <laughs> um so the goal is still you know I, i'm still trying to play metallic mage at the pro tour but i think that a good exercise is to see if i can get reps in with these other decks to just kind of like understand what's important which is something that's very very necessary to naming well with metallic mage yeah yeah definitely and it also helps especially in a powerful format like modern when I'm playing against decks that I have only played against a couple of times and that I've never played with myself, there's sort of this like misunderstanding of what the powerful things they can do are. Like back when Modern was a, yeah, a, a yeah. pretty new format, playing against Tron was really, really scary to me because I just like didn't have that understanding of what they could do to me and when they could do it to me. And it was just like, oh man, it's Tron. They're going to have so much mana and their spells are so powerful. But like playing humans against Tron, nothing that they, uh, unless they are like Eldrazi Tron and have all his dust or something, like their seven mana turn is not actually that powerful of a turn because Karn is probably not stopping your wide board. Uh, and knowing the specifics right. of what they're capable of is really, really important and not just sort of having an idea that like my opponent can do strong stuff. Like that's not good enough. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah because definitely you can you can play through a lot of the stuff that comes down on uh seven mana mm -hmm. like if you have a reflector mage then you're not worried about worm coil engine and if you've, your board is wide enough then you're not worried about karn so yeah yeah i think you made a good point there another thing that i kind of want to mention here is that sometimes a useful tool that i've used to figure out which play would have been better in hindsight mm -hmm. is to like after a match is over ask my opponent what they were more worried about from my end. Sure. After the match, I could be like, okay, so you remember the spot where I played this? Would it have been worse for you had I ended up playing this other thing? And your opponent is so often going to be able to answer that question with, oh yeah, it would have been much worse for me if you'd done that other thing. Yeah. Um, because they're the person who's playing the deck that you're playing against. I, I wish I had like an actual example here, but the idea is... If you're in your opponent's seat, you have such a better understanding of which plays are more powerful 
in in certain contexts. It, it's sometimes hard to evaluate when you're not as familiar. So like like again, if you're like playing against Tron and you're you know, trying to decide on turn two between spreading seas or like putting down a lord. I mean, spreading seas is probably right, but it still could be worth asking your opponent. And and they might say like, well, because I had the map and the Tron pieces or, or, or you know, whatever, whatever indications they've given you of what they have. And they might be more aware of what those little tells of which lands they actually have access to, what those are. Mm-hmm. And they they're more aware of like, you know, what's the critical turn where that spreading seas is actually really devastating? Or um, what do you need to do to put that clock that they can't deal with on? And, and your opponent is definitely more aware of that, at least from the perspective of what their deck is capable of responding to. Yeah, I think that in general, a lot of people, there's a lot of information to be gained by just talking to your opponent after the match is over. Information to be gained about the matchup and their perspectives on it. You can ask them you know, whether or not certain cards are good from your sideboard or stuff like that. Especially if you're, like, a newer player. Like, you know, you might play a matchup and you know it 100% and you don't really need to talk to your opponent about it. But, like, especially in standard or whatever, like, early in in a standard environment where the decks are all pretty new, uh, you I think that you're giving up a lot of information for yourself by just kind of not talking to your opponent after a match. Just kind of, like, asking them their opinions on certain things from their perspective of playing their deck. Mm-hmm. I think that that's something that I haven't done as much in the past and kind of want to do more of in the future is just kind of like talk to my opponent about certain things. And a, a good example of that is actually after like the first draft of the Grand Prix, my opponent and I played against each other. And then after the match, my opponent was like, hey, can I, uh, can I take a look at your deck and the cards that you drafted? And I was just like, wow, that's genius. You know, <laughs> we all have like certain information about what's happening in the draft right but if you after the match is over get to see more information by looking at your opponent's cards mm. like maybe there's like a, a card that you passed that you might be worried about or like tricks that they picked up to prevent somebody else from getting them or something um there's just so much information to be gained there about like what's left in the draft pool just by you know talking to your opponent after the match yeah i think i've never even thought of that but that's that seems clearly correct to do <laughs> Right, so I continued to do that throughout the rest of the day, and it, it was brilliant. I, you know, I talked to my opponent, and I would be like, "Hey, you know, are you willing to? You want to look at each other's draft pools to help us out for the remainder of the tournament?" Yeah, because it's it's just in your best interest for your opponent to just do well from then on out, right? Because he's going to be part of your tiebreakers, um, and he probably feels the same way or should. Right, and and you're offering each other the same thing, which is you both get to look at right. each other's pool. So that's that's a pretty equal exchange. Right. And, you know, some players are not going to be bad at it, and you can ask and they'll decline, and then you can move on, and that's not really that big of a deal. But, yeah, I think that uh, you just can gain a lot of equity there just by just talking to your opponents Yeah. Um, after each match. So these are all good things. I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about them, but they are some of them are a little bit removed from playing while you're <laughs> Yeah, we, we've gone off on some, some red hair. I mean, so sure. this is probably going to end up being a being titled a, like, magic theory episode kind of generally at the end of the day. Sure. But to kind of get back to where we started a little bit, yeah, I think an important part, especially in limited playing from ahead, is being hyper-aware. I mean, in Constructed too, you have to be aware of what's in your opponent's deck. But in limited, you have to yeah. be hyper-aware of what's available in the format yeah. that yeah. could cause you to be, you know, to lose your winning position. Um, I, the big things that I'm thinking of are 
wrath effects. So Hour of Devastation Limited particularly had a lot of wrath effects at rare across like almost every color. And so if I started getting ahead in Hour of Devastation, I was very careful not to have many more creatures on the board than my opponent did. And one other big thing is player burn. So if you are at a low life total, you have to be very aware of unfriendly fire in Ixal Unlimited. And you don't want to take that last damage taking you from from five to four or five to three or whatever because unfriendly fire is a super real thing you know you can take into account what you've seen from your opponent but the whole concept of playing from ahead is that you are able to play around even more stuff than just what you know about so play around those rares like play around the fiery cannonade that you didn't that you didn't even see in the draft because it's the only thing that can kill all your tokens and make you not win the game but in order to do that you have to have a pretty deep understanding of the format and and what what these decks are capable of doing yeah just having that knowledge is is in limited i think probably the most important thing yeah and you get it like instinctually after some point but but definitely important to like take into account and be thinking about all, pretty much all the time. You know, not only during the draft, but also like you know while you're playing and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it does vary. Like every format that like that resets with every new format, and the things you have to worry about change. So you gotta keep your eyes open. I think. You have any more examples play at, you know of of playing from ahead and what you know whether you messed up or you you think you did something particularly good? I do think that. There was one game that I felt like I played really well that I might want to talk about. I don't know if it's particularly me playing ahead. I guess I was pretty far ahead. I was playing in a, a Grand Prix trial on Friday, and it was mostly just to get just a little bit of hands-on experience with the sealed format. Like, I'd played a bunch of sealed online, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't... I, I was kind of like, you know, my, my physical mechanics were a little rusty, so I wanted to just, like, you know, play in a tournament. Yeah. Also, Jeremy was trying to get his second buy, so the plan was just to kind of scoop him in if we ever played against each other. So I was playing in the Grand Prix trial, and the pool that I opened was maybe my favorite sealed pool archetype, which is no rares (laughs) beatdown. But I had a really good curve, and I had like three premium removal spells, and I had like three combat tricks. I had a Skullduggery and two Vampire Zeals. And just like an excellent curve, like a bunch of two drops and three drops, and then, you know, the curve ended out pretty smoothly. So I was playing against a guy, and I read him for a vampire zeal. We're we're kind of racing a little bit, and we've got, you know, we've both got a board state that's reasonable, and I feel a little bit far ahead, so I decided to play pretty cautiously. He attacks me, and I think about it, and we're racing, and the race is pretty close, and he attacks into me, and I could make some blocks, but I get blown out by Vampire Seal. And in my hand, I have my own Vampire Seal, and I'm, but I'm tapped out at this point. So I decide to take this hit down to, like, five mm. in order to play it around the Vampire Seal because I figured that I'd be able to still effectively race from here even after taking this hit, uh, as long as I can make sure that I'm not getting blown out by the combat trick. I have the 3-3 um, the uh, Explore Vigilance guy, and so I have this 4-4 Vigilance creature that's kind of doing a pretty good job. And I play an Imperial Aerosaur, jump him, hit my opponent for 5 with Vigilance, keeping a white mana up past the turn. And my opponent had just kind of like jump attacked into my 4-4 last time. So I was pretty confident the other removal spell, or the, the combat trick. Yeah. 
So I pass to him again, and he makes a similar kind of all-out attack, and I end up making the obvious blocks of my guy lives, your guy dies on, like, two guys, and then I take another hit that would put me down to three. And sure enough, he goes for the combat trick, and I respond with my combat trick, and just three for one him with this combat <laughs> trick. And it felt really good. But uh, I think that that was just kind of more an example of, like, being aware of what exists in the format and what your opponent could have um, in terms of combat tricks. I kind of, like, read my opponent for a particular card, and because I was very well aware of that card and how it would impact the game, I was able to kind of sculpt the game in such a way where he went for his trick and then I blew him out in my own way, which ended up just kind of ending, ending the game on the spot. So like, if you, if you are able to get those reads of what your opponent might have in certain scenarios based on your just you know, knowledge of the format and what, what people might be playing, you can really, really sculpt the game in a, in a successful way to, to really benefit you. Yeah. So. And I, I mean, I think that that's a really key part of the whole being ahead and playing tightly uh, in order not to lose to anything paradigm. You right. couldn't afford to take several extra damage if the race was significantly tighter, if he had been like hitting you with a two-power flyer the whole time. But because you were ahead right, right. enough, you, you could just say, all right, I'll take the damage. And then that's a really key way of playing around stuff is I will have a solution to this problem later on i just need to spend some resources now in order to not get completely blown out uh, if he does have it so yeah yeah i think that's really similar to what we're talking about yes yeah, so that was a scenario where i felt like i did things pretty well and identified what i could lose to and then kind of like successfully played around it yep. and used my life total as a pretty big resource by taking like a big chunk in order to do so it always feels good when you can do that yes yeah you feel see this is this is what's really cool too is you're going to win the game, probably, like no matter what you do. But those times when you make the right call and you play around everything and then it turns out that they do have it, like that's nice. That is a, when, they, when they throw the card down on the table at the end of the match and go, man, I had this the whole time, but I never got to, then yeah, that's, that's, that's the good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes you just feel on top of the world after making plays like yeah. that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then just like one final thing about like playing while you're ahead and you know making that call of like okay I have, I, i'm gonna go ahead and play around this because i can afford to at some point the game can shift to a place where you can no longer afford to play around that yeah that's a that's a good point sometimes you're playing around something over and over again and you're kind of like waiting to draw into something that'll be able to beat it mm -hmm. but you just never do and then at some point you just gotta stop playing around yep it. and it, it hurts because you probably gave up a bunch you know especially you know, in scenarios slightly different from what we're talking about, if you weren't way ahead, you probably gave up equity playing around the vampire zeal and then uh, never quite got to where you needed to be in order to, to blank it if they yeah. do have it. So that, that hurts to have to make that decision. But it can also happen in games where, like my Pummeler example, you know, for a couple of turns, Cartouche of Ambition was really the thing I was thinking about. And so if instead of making that big attack, that ended up with my Ferocidon dying. I had just kind of sat back and either made a smaller attack or waited for my opportunity to burn him out. Wh whatever it was, the game was going to go on a couple of more turns. If my opponent had then untapped and played an electrostatic pummeler, then that would have changed the game really significantly to a point where I probably wouldn't have been able to play around the Cartouche of Ambition anymore because now the way that I lose this game 
is if I pass the turn without using up any of his resources in such a way that he's just able to kill me with a gigantic trampling electrostatic pummeler. And, right, and right. I, I think that's the main way that you have to reevaluate these playing from ahead scenarios is that your opponent can make plays that change the thing that you lose to. And so it's a it's a kind of constantly changing dance of what what is the thing that they could have now. And and it, it gets very complicated, especially with decks that you're not super if you've never played with them before, then you might not be aware of what it could be and you just have to keep like re-updating your your understanding of the scenario. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you yeah, you still have to reassess and don't get kind of like locked into one particular mindset or another. Like the the game is going to be very fluid and dynamic, and it's going to change over the course of several turns. So you need to be able to adapt with that. Mm-hmm. So you know, although it is important to have these certain kind of like mental frameworks for how to think about things when you're ahead, you shouldn't be locked into that. You should still be thinking dynamically and constructively about what you're. What's actually going on. Right. Especially because the way that you're playing in those situations tend to extend the game by a couple of turns. So Right, right. Yeah, so I'm not really sure what else there is. Um like like do you have any other points that we haven't hit on yet? Um no, I think that we covered a lot of good stuff here, for sure. Yeah, I think so too. I I'm, I'm really proud of us, I think. <laughs> we hit on some good things. <laughs> But yeah, I think that I think that, that that should should do it. Yeah. So I mean, I think the takeaways here are really just there are lots of different situations where you need to slow down and turn off the autopilot. Being ahead is a really big right. one of them, and you know, being aware of what are the things that could go wrong is, you know, I always we always preach like get games in like these things will start coming more easily to you. This is one of those things where I think you have to choose to consciously think about it. Right, and I'm trying to get better at it myself, and it, it just t- it takes a lot of work. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I'm still screwing it up every tournament, so <laughs> I'm also working on it as well. Uh, it's not not something that just happens for for you, but I think that if you are thinking about it in constructive ways, then it's just going to do a lot for you in the long run. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Cool. Well, I think that's pretty much all we've got for this episode. Thanks everybody so much for listening. Uh, if you want to check us out, you can find us online. Our Twitter is at MTG underscore Grindcast. Uh, you can also find Collins on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. And I also am just finishing editing my first sort of grinding in Germany vlog. So that'll be up on YouTube by the time that this... Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited. I'm, I'm pretty pumped too. I'm, I, I, this is going to be a cool little project. So... You know, if anybody's nice. interested in to sort of seeing this stuff, that video will be up by the time that this is posted. And yeah, it should be a lot okay. of fun. And where can we find that video? So I will post it on the Twitter account. Okay. Yeah, that's probably the easiest Excellent. place to find it. And then by next episode, I will have uh, like a, a channel address. Or, or maybe after that, sure, I know you sure. need 100 subscribers before you can get like a pretty URL that just has your your channel name in it. So maybe I'll hold okay. off on saying that until I get work up to 100 subscribers. All right. Well, you heard it here first, guys. Make sure you follow us on Twitter so that you can check out uh, Chris's vlogs. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, everybody, have a great week. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Awesome. Until next time. <laughs>